Hello, and welcome to the Unique CPA with your host, Randy Crabtree. We're committed to creating a thriving community of accounting professionals who are physically and mentally healthy, fulfilled, and energized by their work. Our ultimate goal is to elevate the reputation of the accounting profession and vastly improve the lives of those in it. The Unique CPA is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Today, our guest is Gail Crasley. Many of you, if not most of you, probably already know Gail uh, by name, but in case for some reason you've been living under a rock and you don't know Gail, uh, Gail is uh, president of Crasley & Company. She's a consultant to CPA firms, probably uh, mid-market or top 400 CPA firms is, is where she lives, so higher end as well. She spent uh, many years working with technology firms from IBM to startups, um, but before that even, she... Uh, worked in public accounting, so she's had quite of a, an arc in her professional career. She is on everybody's list out there. Uh, County Today's Top 100 uh, just came out recently. She was on that for, and she can correct me if I'm wrong, at least I think 16 or 17 straight years now. She was the recipient of the Advisory Board Hall of Fame Award. I'm going to have to figure out what that is, so I'll ask Gail what that is as we go in. But pretty much everything out there, you'll see Gail on the list of, of people that you should know and you should be working with. Gail, hey, welcome to the Unique CPA. Hi. <laughs> Thanks How for are the you? invite. I'm doing well today. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm sitting in Sedona, Arizona, so I'm having a great time looking at some mountains out my window right now and talking to you. What could be better? There you go. You're in your happy place, and I hope the audience is in their happy place today <laughs> for this recording. I hope so, too. So so, so a couple things. So you, you've, I've known of you for years I honestly think we met at some point years ago in passing at some conference. I think it might have been a CPA America conference. That's my thought. Um, and you've done work with CPA America before in the past, right? Yes. Actually, I've worked with almost all of the major associations and networks around the world. And that's taken me also beyond the United States into doing work around the world. So I do a lot of international stuff as well. Nice. Does that mean you're traveling international as well? Uh, yes, yes. I've been before COVID uh, Monday through Friday on airplanes and, you know, every now and again around the world. So uh, because I love to travel and people, you know, will say, oh, my God, I hate to travel. I'm not one of them. I, I'm a wanderlust. Uh, I've never seen, you know, a country that I didn't like to be in. So that's that's me. I, I agree completely. People say the same thing to me because I'm pretty much May 1st through mid-December, I'm on the road. You know, when it's not tax season, I'm on the road. And people are like, don't you get tired of that? They go, no, I get to go out, one, <laughs> to interesting places, yeah. and two, to talk to interesting people. I mean, what's better than that? So. I know. I need to change the scenery just like you. Yeah. Yep. In fact, uh, like I said, we're in Sedona, Arizona right now. You know, now is my slow season where we, you know, to a uh, spoiler alert, we're recording this in early January of 23. This is my slow time. And so on my slow time, I travel again. So I pretty much travel uh, all year round. All right. Enough about my travel escapades and your travel. So the, just one to wrap this up, what we we're talking here besides the travel is I've known you of you for years met in the past. I think when I started this podcast three plus years ago, you were on my list of people that I wanted to get on here. And finally we, uh, our paths crossed a few months ago and we were able to make it happen. So I really appreciate you agreeing to do this. I'm looking forward to this conversation today. Thank you. Same. 
All right. So let's start with who you are, I guess. And you probably get asked this all the time and, and, and that, but I think it's in such an interesting story, your story of starting a public accounting and then the path that you went down and how you got to where you are today. And I think that's very relevant, obviously, to the work you're doing. So can you give us a this this kind of career arc path and knowledge gaining path that you've gone through? Sure. I'm going to start with who I am, and I'm a st- strategic organic revenue growth consultant and uh, two mid-market, mostly mid-market CPA firms. And as a result of that, I transformed them into really high growth environments. And the way that I got doing this was I came from many, many years in corporate America where I was with the best of the best and learned the best of the best about how to drive demand and how to strategically grow a company from startup all the way through very large organizations. And when the dot-com bust happened about 20 years ago, I came back over here into CPA land and I saw that it was fertile ground, that the level of of sophistication with growth was very low relative to uh, corporate America. And in that regard, it was individual contribution, banker, breakfast, lawyer, lunch, very tactical and generalist, you know, hang out our shingle for all comers. And by the time I get done working with a firm, they don't look like that at all. They look like not individual contribution, but leader-driven team-based growth. They look like a very strategic capturing markets at a time versus one fish at a time. And they're super specialized so that they can compete in an environment where we have, what, 44,000 CPA firms. And the reason why my message resonated was because of my past. I started as a CPA with Arthur Anderson and Pricewaterhouse as an auditor. I moved from Cleveland to Atlanta. So I was a Yankee in the South, a woman in public accounting back in the day, and they kind of ran me off. So Mm -hmm. after about a year of in and out trying to find my way, IBM, uh, I wandered into their local office one day after, you know, leaving Pricewaterhouse and they said, well, we think you can sell. Um, I said, excuse me, I'm a professional CPA. No. And they came after me for about a year. And then finally, a year later, they said, listen, we can teach you how to sell. We can't teach you how to be analytical. And we need women to sell the big iron, the big mainframes, which the cheapest one was a million dollars. So I learned how to sell very large strategic solution, you know, long sell cycle stuff. And the rest is kind of history. I went up through the food chain, the corporate food chain of sales management, marketing management, new product development management. So IBM bounced me around and then I launched out of there into a lot of venture capital backed startups, had my own company for a while in the mid nineties, actually. And as a result, by the time I came back over here, I had a tremendous experience from startup to very, very large and all the scalable pieces in between in the driving demand side of the house. And so that's that's how I ended up here. And that's the value proposition is to bring those best practices over to our profession to really get it you know, going and continuing to improve, shall we say. Yeah. 
Yeah, I see that that's an area where I think I think many firms, and maybe I'm a little bit old in my thinking, but maybe this is still the case. Many firms are not do not have a plan on growth. It's like, hey, there's a client, let's take it. Now, I think that's changed a little bit lately, just because there's so many clients out there that people can be picky and choosy, and they can hopefully firms are are calling the herd uh, uh, every year too because there's clients you don't want to deal with. But how did you when you started? Uh, a Crosley and Company, and it's what, 20, over 20 years now? 20 years, uh-huh, 20 years ago. Okay, and you said that that was basically you were in tech and the, the, the dot-com bubble was coming or came and was in the middle, and I assume you were looking for probably the same thing you tell your CPA firms is look for this new path to business, this new niche you want to get involved in, and obviously with your background of being a CPA, but how did you identify CPA firms was the group that needed your expertise? Good question. And I will say by answering it, Randy, that I I eat my own dog food. So I don't, I don't foist on anybody, anything that I don't do myself. And I call what I do a set of principles, generally accepted growth principles. And although like gap and gas are codified in one place, generally accepted growth principles are not. So I've codified them and I have these principles in a, you know, the Crosley method. And one of the key pieces is when you're picking a market, you look at uh, several markets and you evaluate each of the individual markets and the market conditions in each, and then you cut the squad. So I had five uh, markets that looked like they had potential and I evaluated all five and the CPA firms kept coming up on the list of the, the final candidates. And finally, the, the other one that I looked at uh, that came up on the finalist list was law firms. And there was no question that the CPA firms had great market conditions. And why do I say that? At the time, they were moving from something called the product life cycle from stage two to stage three. And the product life cycle is a very important principle about what you do when when a market is young versus it's going gangbusters versus it's maturing out versus it's a fat cat, shall we say. And I saw that firms were moving or this market was moving from stage two to stage three, which requires a higher level of sophistication because there's lots of more competitors. And so as a result of that, I kept going down the path of evaluation. I launched my first early adopter, which was a $5.5 million firm in Atlanta. And I used the early adopter to get to the next step, which is the early majority. And so using that concept, I kept going down the road and it was like door after door after door. Thank you, the Lord above. But it just, the doors just kept opening and it was absolutely clear. This is where I should be. So, and that's what I, you know, what I teach my firms. And it appears just in hearing you talk, it is a passion and following your passion is awesome too. And I think it seems like you learned that passion and found that passion many years ago. And that's awesome to see. I would assume you agree. Yes, but it did take a many years to find the passion. Yeah. Like this, this was not like a lot of people in their road to success, their road to what they love to do. And success in my mind is you love to do it. You're good at it. You can do it, you know, with your eyes closed. It's your God-given gifts. And a lot of people never find that. But I say that my word of advice is to continue to pursue that because when you find it, you will know. Oh, yeah. You will, you do it. <laughs> 
I don't want my clients to hear this. I, you do it for free, right? Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but, but you can't do it for free, but you would. You would. Oh, oh, I agree completely. I, I probably five years ago now, or it took me about two years, but you know, later in life, I found my passion. And it is like, I do not work a day in yeah. my life right now. I just haven't. Look at what I get to do. I get to sit here and talk to you. I mean, what, what, what could be more fun than that? Right. So, right. yeah. So, right. so finding. Back at you, guy. Back at you. Yeah, finding your passion is is awesome, but it, it doesn't happen overnight. So, like you said, and my story as well. But uh, all right, so you mentioned that the uh, the generally accepted uh, uh, growth principles, which I think is awesome. Where we got oh gap, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I just looked at the initials, um, and so I think that's great. Obviously, working with firms too because we they like processes and procedures and, and principles and 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 methodologies uh, to be put in place. Do you want to go over that? What are these generally accepted growth principles and how you instill them into these firms you work with? Sure. I'll, I'll just give you a couple of them because just like um, Gap and Gas, there are several, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember studying for the exam that we had to memorize them and it, that was painful. <laughs> we had mnemonics and acronyms and all that stuff. I but, can't even remember um, that far back. Them. I have no idea what they were. <laughs> you know what? I took the Becker CPA course, I and I too. can remember I go I go sick prepo and tipsy wacky. <laughs> I can't even remember that. <laughs> oh, so yeah, well, we both know and love Becker, and thank God for them, right? Um, I actually anyway, took it. Uh, Sorry, Gail. I I took Becker because. Um, I, one, I wanted to learn what they were doing, but two, I needed more hours before I could exit for the exam. I, I don't have an accounting degree and uh, I needed more hours and Becker counted towards the hours. And so one, I figured, all right, I'm prepping for the exam and I'm getting my hours so I can go in there and sit for it. So I interrupted. Go ahead. Well, I've got a little story to tell you here is that I got a scholarship when I was a senior and they gave me college credits for taking the course while I was in college still. And I sat for the exam before I graduated. Oh, nice. So I did the same thing you did. (laughs) We did it for right. (laughs) Right. And you can't do that anymore, can you? I think you have to have your, do you have to have your 150 hours before you take the exam? I think so. Yeah. Which is another thing. Anyway, um, so the these principles are as immutable as debit left, credit right. And a lot of accountants don't know that. They don't know that there are principles. They don't know what they are. And they don't know that when you violate them, it costs you. Now, you don't go to jail because if you do a bad audit and the debits and credits, you know, don't equal, you know, you, you, you could have a serious problem. When you violate these principles um, on, this, on the driving demand side, you just won't grow. Now, that's painful, but it's not as painful as going to jail. Yeah. So a lot of firms will go or a lot of you know people I talk to, is, well, I'll just slide by that. Um, but they truly, if you want to strategically grow, and I say strategically, and let me take a detour, strategic growth is the best kind of growth because it's sustainable. It's profitable. It is efficient. And it's also the fastest growth. If you get the three elements of strategy, I'll come back to in a minute. It is absolutely the fastest growth. And as I told someone the other day, you can spend 10 hours and and drive $100,000 worth of revenue, or you can spend the same 10 hours and drive $500,000 worth of revenue, your choice. 
It's kind of like um, on the fulfilling demand side, you have Lean Six Sigma, and that's obvious to see, you know, squishing uh, processes down to their minimal required. Um, But on the driving demand side, you have the same thing. If you follow the principles, you're doing like Lean Six on driving demand. So you can drive exponentially more revenue in the same amount of time. And because these, these principles are as immutable as debit left, credit right, I'll give you one of them, which is when you are looking at how to grow, this product life cycle I mentioned concept earlier is very important that if something is just brand new, you're getting it off the ground, you have one strategy, strategic imperative. As you go through the fast growth part of it, be it a market, Uh, that you're trying to get into like real estate or not-for-profit or be it a service line that you're trying to get into like opportunity zone credits or cryptocurrency services, whatever, then um, it goes through this fast growth path and your strategic initiative shifts from from this imperative to this imperative to this imperative to this imperative. And if you know that, for example, if you're trying to drive um, revenue in an audit practice, it's, it's over in fat cap. So the things that are important, the strategic imperative is to drive uh, innovation and um, efficiency. If you're trying to get something brand new off the ground like SPACs, uh, that's not what you're trying to do. Your strategic imperative is to get early adopters. So if you know where you are and you know this principle, you can go make a beeline for it. And that's one example of uh, of a generally accepted growth principle. So real quick, based on what you just said there, when you say early adopters, you're saying early adopters within a firm or you're talking about early adopter clients that you need to go after? What what do you mean by yeah. early adopters? Early adopter clients. Okay. In other words, get out in the market and who's going to be your first you know, early adopter client that you're going to work with. And then there's a set of principles around how you do that as well. So the principles, you know, kind of go down all the way pretty deep into each of these areas. Okay. And then you were just going to expand on two others? Yeah, there are two other principles that are uh, equally relevant. One is something that I call the revenue segmentation matrix. And what that means is that when you are taking a firm that already has revenues and it's not a startup, um, you you take a big matrix in the sky and you put all the revenues of all your industries in the columns and all the revenues of your service lines in the rows and you populate that matrix and see what the contribution to the total is. And that informs where you might go in the market and what you might do in it. And also, when you're a larger firm and have, you know, five or more partners, then you assign different partners to different chunks of the revenue. And this is the first page of the playbook uh, for really growing and and, um, scaling the firm. Because, see, before that, everybody just has their book of business and that's all they care about. And you roll up the the revenue, you know, and at the end of the year and say, this is what we we did. Now, y'all go out there and just grow 10 percent or whatever. But when you move to the matrix model, you're moving to leading growth, not just doing it. And you're you're moving to each person owns a business unit and the strategic direction and financial health of a chunk of the revenue of the firm. And that is so foundational as a generally accepted growth principle to scaling your firm. And usually at about five million is where this hits as a requirement. And then you can take the firm all the way up to billions 
with this particular principle. All right. Five million uh, per segment or five million yes. overall revenue for the firm? Five million overall revenue for the firm. That's what I figured. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty much when you start when it starts breaking down the old model of, you know, everybody just go out and sell, uh, you know, make rain. This is when it starts to break down and you can't scale it very well. And some firms try to continue on tough. Right. Yeah. And so you need a leader of these. Let's say are you, when you're saying these segments, this is a niche, right? I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're the transportation niche or we deal with restaurant niche or the, it, it, that's what you mean by the, the segment within the, the revenue within the firm. It could be a segment of revenue that's a column or a segment of revenue that's a row. Okay. Yes. So it's the audit row. It's the tax row. It's the tax credit row. It's the, you know, it's the whatever row it is. And um, so, yes, and the, the job is the same, whether it's a row leader or a column leader. Yep. And I stay away from the term niche because niche connotes a specialty that is not your standard garden variety like audit or tax. And this applies equally to audit and equally to tax as it does to uh, a particular niche. And uh, so I found that niche has all kinds of baggage associated with it as a, <laughs> as a term. Therefore, I say segment. I'll go into firms segment. and, oh, they've got the niches covered. But what about 80 to 90 percent of your revenue that's in audit and tax? Oh, well, we don't need to do anything with that. I'm Excuse me. Excuse me. Wait a minute. I see. <laughs> you know, those are not on autopilot. We got to do something right. with them or they'll become long in the tooth and irrelevant. So. Yeah. Right. All right. So we got the segments and then we got the services that contribute yeah, to each segment. It's a revenue segment. It's a segment that's a column or a segment that's a row. It's a revenue segment. Yeah. Not a, a market segment. segment and they revenue. cross paths and then you figure out yeah. where we're doing the audits for what. Okay. All right. You're teaching me this. I figure if you teach me, you're going to be teaching other people. And I always say niche, although I know some people say niche as well, but you say segment. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll adopt segment, revenue although I'm segment. not sure I can. All right. Revenue, revenue segment. segment. Let me ask this question then. So the segment, let's assume, and again, we've got segments and we've got the, we've got the, the, the up and down and we got the side to side and intersections. And when you're going in and you're looking at this and seeing where revenue is coming from and, and where it should be and what the profitability is and everything that you're analyzing there, is there a point where you go in and you say, hey, you have this segment, but look at what it is. This is not, there's no profitability here. You're not doing well in here. You don't have any expertise in here. Do you go in and say, hey, let's dump this, this segment? Or is that something that happens? Yes. Um, certain things matter and certain other things don't. Like what matters is are you profitable, but what doesn't matter is do you have any expertise? That That's not relevant, which is like, what? What do you mean? What I mean by that that's is- what I, That's my face. <laughs> you know, yeah. when when socks came out, Sarbanes-Oxley, we none of my firms had any talent in it at all, right? right? In cryptocurrency, nobody had any talent in it. ESG, nobody has any talent in it. That's not a market condition. So my point about this is you step back from the matrix and you say, okay, our industries are the columns, our service lines are the rows. You step back and you say, okay, now where do we go? I mean, literally you were, you were on the edge of it when you, when you were talking about the crosshairs there. Where you go is where the market conditions are best. 
It has nothing to do with what we're good at or want to want to sell. The market doesn't care what we do and the market doesn't care what we want to sell. The market only cares what the market cares about. So one of the big shifts in in mindset that I work with firms on is to to change your thinking from I'm looking at the from the inside out, what do we have? Let's go find someone to sell it to to the outside in which is let's look at the markets and find out what they want compare it with what we have and see if we have it or don't have it. And if we don't have it, get it. So when we do that, some of the principles involved are how do you look at the market from the outside in and compare the markets so that, you know, what happens is our leaders come in, we sit down and we say, aha, that's a hot spot. That's a hot spot in the matrix. And these are all cold spots. So the hot spots are the intersections of an industry and a service line where the market conditions are excellent. Yep. So maybe we have four hot spots in the matrix and that's where we put our resources now. That's where we put our focus and our time and our energy and our and our financial resources and we have everybody on the same page because now we're a football team. We're not just a bunch of golfers like we used to be going out and playing the course by ourselves and bringing in, you know, a fish. Right. We are now a football team. And now we're all together on the same page. And Susie says, yes, but I'm a not for profit Kaz and I need it because the market conditions are so good. And Joe says, yeah, but I'm over in banking with, you know, with audits. And yeah, but that's there's nothing going on there. The market is crowded. The the conditions are horrible. Um, it's all tied up with our competitors. And Susie's over there saying, "Let me let me give you the data on, you know, CAS and not for profits." And so as a result, we start putting the monies where we need them put. And what Joe really needs is he needs uh, machine learning and AI embedded in his audit so that he can launch some consultative services in it, right? Um, so it doesn't, I'm not bashing audit, by the way, they all have uniquely, you know, situations and market conditions that could or couldn't be very good or bad. Right. And I know your history is audit. I was never an auditor. I did. I did not enjoy it. I love tax. So I know you wouldn't be bashing audit because that's uh, that's where uh, you grew up in, in, in accounting, right? <laughs> I knew it and I loved it. And you're right. I still think it's wonderful. So, yeah. yeah, I for some reason that was never a passion of mine, and I got out of audit as soon as I possibly could, and I got into tax and been there ever since. All right, so okay, the, the, those two principles, great. You said there was a third that you wanted to talk. What would be that next principle? This is this is one of the most important principles, also, which is when you're devising a growth strategy, there are three elements of strategy. And I see business plans that are 25 pages long and they don't include these three elements of strategy. And it's very simple. Everything rolls up under one of the three. Okay. And they relate to that matrix I was talking about. So if you think about the rows on the matrix, the service, yeah. so that's what is the service? That's one principle or one, one element of growth strategy. And then the other element of a growth strategy is the column, the industry. So who are you selling the service to? Think of three circles. The service here, the who are you selling it, the targeted buyer group here, and in the middle is a very important circle called the distribution channel. Now, what is the distribution channel? It's how you and buyers find each other in great quantities. 
and it could be really weird, odd, out of the box. For example, in St. Louis, the Catholic Diocese was a um, channel into our buyer group. In Detroit, it was trade mission trips that were done by the Chamber of Commerce. Um, in uh, Chicago, I had one which was a divorce planning guide <laughs> in the in the, the litigation support area. I mean, it can go anywhere in any direction if you keep to the, it's a way that you and buyers find each other in great quantities. Then you have the combination Think of a combination lock where you have three digits on it. The service, the channel of the target, 10, 15, 22. Um, and that is the service, the channel, and the target that is unique for that row and column, you know, intersection. And what happens is that when you find these elements of strategy, SCT, service channel target, that's when you unlock the safe of strategy and revenue starts flowing because that is the framework for it. And when I go into a firm that they don't have any of this, by the time I'm done, we may have 5, 10, 20, I don't know how many combinations, but we know what the strategic combinations are not. Hmm. If you're one digit off, you won't grow. So it's not if it's not a 10, 15, 22, well, maybe you thought it was a nine and it's not a nine, it's not 11, it's exactly a 10. They want cash management services and their restaurant chains. And the way you get into them is through, you know, the National Restaurant Association. And what you do with the National Restaurant Association is you don't do a booth and then, you know, go sponsor something that's tactical. We have channel alignment, which is another whole, we don't have time for that today, but but the point about it is it's service channel target. And if any of you see my website, crosleycompany.com, you'll see right on the homepage, or maybe it's the first tab, one of my clients saying SCT drives what they do. It drives the growth of their firm. And they they got it. It's like, okay, I got it. It's like debit left, credit right. So I want to I want to expand on that real quick, uh, but before I do that, I, I'm going to I'm going to go into a story of what one thing we did, and I want to get your opinion on this, um, and it's similar to what you just said. But when you're in there and you've got this matrix and you're looking at things, do you find that hey, we doesn't matter if we have this expertise uh, in this industry or this service. But this is an area where there is growth. We should look at adding this service or adding this industry. Is this something or we just have an employee that's so passionate about this industry? Let's let's because it intersects with some of our services. Let's bring this industry in. Is that part of this consulting you do when you go into firms? Yeah, uh, Randy, and it happens all the time. And that gets me to something else. I always have models and think of a three legged stool. And strategic growth is the seat. There are three functional elements, marketing, sales, and what you're talking about, which is innovation. So innovation is part of it always. And sometimes you don't have to innovate very much. You just have to customize what you do for a particular buyer group. But sometimes the, the evidence from the market input is so compelling that you must evaluate it. And in your world, for example, a few years ago, Opportunity Zone credits, right? OZ credits came out and I was working with firms on evaluating it. And it turned out that they were very popular in certain geographies 
and not so much in others, and very popular in certain um, industries, right, and not so much other. And that was a perfect example of the intersection of we have an OZ credit potential, that's a row, and we have no revenue in it today, so we right. had zeros across the line. But we had about eight industries, and we looked at every single industry and said, aha, that's the industry. And so that was the hot, that was the hot spot. That was the intersection. And now we launched OZ credits. This was a, a firm of mine in Kansas. Um, and the and the conditions were excellent in Kansas for OZ credits. And um, and it was in a particular um, one or two, you know, industries. And so that's a, a great example of how that happened. Let me give you our example then and tell me if I'm on target here. A year, what are, what are we? Two years ago. Two years ago, in fact. My two-year anniversary uh, of this uh, is uh, in two days. Um, big changes that happened in the employee retention credit. Now, we're a, we're a specialty tax consulting firm or service firm, and this was a brand new service. I think I got that right. Because yep. ERC, we didn't do it before. We didn't. Yeah. Um, and as a side note, anybody listening knows that I am have get on my soapbox a lot about employee retention credit because there's so much misinformation out there on that. And I think everybody understands at this point, we're a firm that does this correctly. Uh, we don't promise everybody. I had to put that disclaimer. Anytime you say employee retention credit right now, I feel like you have to put this disclaimer that no, not everybody qualifies. Let's make sure. All right. Bottom line is, so this is new service. Yeah. This is this we have, you know, if we look at the the columns and the rows, there's a lot of intersection, mm -hmm. I, I'm sure, of industries that we work with and, and would qualify. But from a channel, the channel would be what we ended up doing as one of the ways to get into this was tied in, and you mentioned earlier in your example, the National Restaurant Association. Perfect, perfect candidate for the employer retention credit. So ended up, we, we, we became members. I've done five or six webinars for them. I've been on their podcast. Uh, we're part of their education group where we give back to their group. And so I think in, in that scenario, it just, that helped us a lot. Now that's been, you know, whatever, 10% of our revenue in ERC maybe came from that, but that's a big number. But so from that, it's the service is the ERC. The channel is the National Restaurant Association and the targets restaurants. Am I, I, I'm just trying to educate myself. Am I on base with what that's, with what your uh, plan is there? Um, so far, good. <laughs> However, the thing that I didn't hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> The thing that I didn't hear is the strategic alignment with NRC. Okay. Or, or NRA, National Restaurants Association, NRA. Um, the the thing that I I would say if we if we rewound the clock back yep. a couple of years, you may or may not have done this. You, you talked about what you did, but we I didn't hear about the channel alignment that you cultivated. Um, so I'll give you an example right now from one of my firms. We're cultivating a channel which is in the architecture and engineering space. And we found an association similar to that. And what I told the segment leader is, I want you to go and interview the executive director and the chairman of the board of that association and find out what their top issues and problems are. Okay. And a, a very live example from New Jersey was in the technology space many years ago when I said the same thing to the leader. And he said, well, we're just going to do a booth at a conference and yada, yada. I said, no, no, no. Sit down with the executive director and tell me what is the top thing on their list. 
And when he did, he found out that the issue was that the um, the colleges in New Jersey were not graduating programmers with a programming language that the CEOs of the tech companies wanted. So they wanted Ruby on Rails programmers, and the colleges were uh, were graduating like C plus programmers or whatever. And so when he talked to the executive director, she said, so we've got to do something about this. So they got their heads together and they executed a strategy to to do several things, to help her with that problem and also to help us get uh, what we wanted, which is find buyers in great quantities. So you can see as that alignment happened, it wasn't a booth at a conference at all. And so what I didn't hear from you, and I don't want you to, to give everybody your no, this secret is great. sauce. No, this is great. <laughs> but, yep. but that is exactly, and I have one other example if we have time for it, that's pretty yeah. poignant. Oh, yeah. But, okay. All I, right. have, I have eight more hours today, so we're good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this one was I love this story of channel alignment. It came out of Birmingham, Alabama. It was a $6 million firm at the time. And we identified the dental niche as having excellent market conditions. So now here we go finding our, trying to find our channels. One potential channel was the provider of uh, goods and services to the dental space. And that was Henry Schein. And Henry Schein provides equipment and supplies to, they're one of the top two at the time, Henry Schein and Patterson Dental were the two. We sat down with the vice president of sales uh, from Henry Schein for the Southeast and said, so what is the top thing on your list? We want to sell a bunch more equipment. That's what we do. I'm on quota. And we want to sell it this year versus next year because quota ends, you know, the year ends 1231. So as we're talking, we find out that, um, Oh, by the way, and this was when uh, we had accelerated depreciation and you could take it, you know, and and really uh, uh, prosper from it. Um, We said to the VP of of sales, and this is my segment leader, well, do you know about uh, accelerated depreciation? And if you sell a $100,000 piece of equipment, your dentist can put up to $25,000 in his pocket. And he goes, what? (laughs) What? And so here's a beautiful example of channel alignment. So we know how to do this. So, and we need to get into all the dentist offices. So the VP of sales says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to get all 40 of my salesmen together. We're going to bring you in. You're going to present to them and you're going to make an offer that you will sit down with them in any of their dentist offices and talk about this. And we did. Okay. And we were in every dentist office in the Southeast. Right. And about... Oh, a month later, Patterson Dental's VP of sales called us and said, hey, we heard you're doing that over at Henry Schein. Can you do that for us? And we said, of course. And that, my friend, and I, you know, we have two more incredible channels that came out of this that are not, one is an association and the other one was the Birmingham Dental School that we just went to town with this. And so that's what I mean by channels of distribution. It's easy to do a booth at a conference and do sponsorship, but this is what I'm talking about. Yep. Yep. All right. So this is why you're out there because you know these things. Um, And I am so bad at the process, procedure, 
following rules. Uh, and that's why everybody else in our company does that. And I just get to go freelance. So you'd probably say, hey, we need to get rid of Randy when you came in and looked at our, uh, yeah, that, the way we handle things. <laughs> no, I, no, I would have said I can teach Randy a lot of stuff and take him to even better than he is, even better, five times the revenue in the same amount of time. Yeah. And, and, I, and I believe you actually could. It's a matter of if I will listen or not. <laughs> That's where we might have a problem. That is true. That is true. So um, I'm at this point. I am set in my ways, and and honestly, we are a very quickly fast growing company. We were listed on Inc. Magazine as one of the five thousand fastest growing private companies last year. I think that a big and this is my ego showing through a big part of that has been me the last three years, the last five years, probably. Um, but man, I probably could do a lot better with that. If I, if I uh, had uh, Gail following me around and telling me where to make changes and, and fixes. So um, we might have to talk a little deeper on that. Thank you for the compliment. Thanks so much. Yep. All right, Gail, this has been awesome. Um, I want to keep going for another two hours because there's so many more questions I wanted to ask, but I think uh, we need to probably start wrapping it up. Before I go to one final question, do you want to try to give us a wrap up on things that we talked about today? Yes. I will tell you that today we look at organic growth and say, oh my God, I don't need any of that. I don't have enough people. But the reality is that we want to keep one eye on the present and one eye on the future because the year-over-year -year growth percent over the last 30 years looks like a roller coaster in our, in our profession. And uh, these times will not last. And when you come up from the grindstone one day and say, oh, my God, you know what happened? You're going to want to um, not be caught flat-footed. So keep an eye on strategic growth. If you say, I don't know where to start, well, go to our website. I have 160 articles up there. You can read, read about it for the next year. The principles are all in there. I wrote a book called At the Crossroads. And it's the difference between, it's a fable between nice. two firms, one that's just on fire with growth and the other one that's doing okay. So yeah, get yourself continuous improvement. Yeah, and that's one thing that, that uh, uh, I wanted to expand on today. You you you, wrote, you mentioned your articles, and you recently had one in accounting today where you had a line in there that I love that uh, flux is everywhere in our profession. Firms are buffeted by the headwinds of talent, technology, and transformation. And and man, that's a lot in there that I think we could spend another forty five minutes talking about how we deal with all that. And I'd love to. So maybe you and I are going to have to schedule another one of these uh, because when I read that, I just stuck with me. It's like, okay, yeah, let's, let's talk about that. So um, what do you please think? Invite me back. Invite me back, please. I would really enjoy it. All right. Well, before we wrap up, one final question that everybody has to answer is, hey, obviously I can tell you're passionate about what you do. You're great at what you do. Uh, the success, I think probably speaks for itself. You probably have a bunch of uh, uh, stories that you can show and talk about uh, with what you're doing and, and how that passion helps. But besides the passion for what you do business-wise, what do you do outside of work that you just love doing? What, what's your free time? What do you, what do you keep your, your mind sharp by not having to think about the uh, uh, growth strategies all day long? Well, my passion is athletics. I'm an athlete. And uh, my husband says I'm an athlete in my mind, but I really am an athlete. <laughs> I love to run. Uh, that's my favorite, favorite passion of all. I love to swim. 
I'm a golfer. I do Pilates uh, in my repertoire of snow skiing and water skiing, but I have I have to cut the squats. So basically running is number one. Swimming is in there is number two. And uh, my constant challenge is which, which sport do I want to engage in today? So yep. <laughs> I love that. And when I have time in the future, I'm a classical piano player. And wow. um, so I've got two pianos at home. And so I tickle the ivories every now and then when I'm, when I'm at home and have time. Wow. Okay. That's a, so that's great to see. Uh, so far, there has not been one person I've asked that question that does not have a passion that's outside of work. So I'm glad that you have that. Uh, um, there's one person that I don't know how he has time to have a passion outside of work because I think he works nonstop. But but that's great to hear all those things. Um, all right. Before we let you go, and you, I think you mentioned it already, but let's get a final how if people want to get more information, you know, with 160 articles or look you up on you know LinkedIn or your website, where can they reach out to you? G Crosley at crosleycompany.com. That's easy enough. And I assume the website is the extension on the email there and probably is LinkedIn something that you use a lot or? Yes, absolutely. All of the above. So they can find me in those places. All right. Well, Gail, I really appreciate this. Like I said, this has been uh, three plus years in the making in my mind. So I'm glad my mind, uh, my idea of having you on uh, came to fruition. And, and, and you're the actually, you reached out to me on, on another subject. So I was glad when you did, because this was great. I had a great time today. Thanks, Randy. I did too. And thank you audience for your listening, having your ears on this podcast and we appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today on the Unique CPA. You can find the show notes for today's episode and learn more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and leave a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting app. And join us next time for more expertise and insights on The Unique CPA. Professionalproductions.net